Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I am your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. Today, we are going to be talking with a therapist, pro athlete, mindset coach, motivational speaker, author, and educator about the asset management skills training that you can't afford to live without. She will tell us all about how to preserve, protect, and promote our greatest assets, energy, focus, memory, mood, clarity, and motivation. Her business, Diamond Mind Strategies, provides mental fitness and nutritional psychology coaching, which allows her clients to master four of life's quadrants, mind, body, career, and romance. It is my privilege to welcome Ava Diamond to the show. Ava Diamond earned her master's in clinical social work from Columbia University over 25 years ago. Since then, she has combined her entrepreneurial approach with continued higher education, decades of clinical experience learning about and treating addiction and trauma, and many years of training and competing at the pro level in fitness to create her organization, Diamond Mind Strategies, Mental Fitness and Nutritional Psychology Coaching. Her work has been utilized by U.S. military, taught at Yale University School of Medicine with pro athletes, CEOs, and law firms. In response to the heightened awareness of the disproportionate numbers of lawyers struggling with depression, anxiety, and addiction, Ava has turned her focus to educating and supporting lawyers about the practical ways they can reduce chronic stress and optimize their brains and bodies for lasting success and wellness. It is my pleasure to welcome Ava Diamond to the show. Thanks so much for joining us, Ava. Hello there. Thanks for having me. Ava, we're so thrilled and honored to have you on the show to talk about some very important topics, wellness and burnout prevention and remediation. And they've been getting a lot of airplay, particularly as it relates to lawyers over the past couple of years. Why don't you start with sharing with our listeners a bit about your personal and professional background? Sure, absolutely. First of all, this is a topic that's very dear to my heart, as so many of my friends and family members are in the legal realm. And I've witnessed firsthand why this has become such an important discussion topic and important to actually not just talk about, but take action toward remediating. So the backdrop is very, I'll I'll give it to you quickly. Who needs to really know too much about me? Um, (laughs) So, you know, 20 years as a clinical psychotherapist, you know, after graduating um, my master's program at Columbia, I stayed in the Northeast and built my practice, but also, you know, being the rebellious soul that I am and having an entrepreneurial bent, I, I always pushed back on what was being done to find the better, more effective approaches for people to actually discover how to create the lives that they wanted and master different elements of life on life's terms, as we say. So my my specialty really was in and still is in addiction treatment. And through that, and also then coupled with the fact that I took my gym rat hobby 
to the competitive realm and you know, earned my pro status and competed at the pro level. And I didn't even start doing that until I was 47 years old. So, you know, you talk about taking things on later in life and, and having it change your trajectory and your perception. Well, you know, that's an example of, of how doors opened in a very new way. And I was able to create this niche with blending together practical and strategic uh, approaches from based in, in clinical theory, but using really what I learned about mastering mind and body to reach goals, both with addiction treatment, where the brain is you know, clearly infused in certain patterns, and how do we disrupt them to, to allow for healthier, more effective ways of connecting the dots in, in there. With training, how do, you, how do you change your lifestyle to support your truest intentions and how you want to be physically and mentally. So therein lies the most encapsulated version of my career story combined with a little bit of my personal story. How's that? <laughs> very cool. Very cool. So you mentioned that you are a professional athlete so and that you compete. So in, in what area? It's professional fitness. And I, I have to, I always feel like I need to have a caveat with that. So professional bodybuilding, but there's a lot of different categories in bodybuilding. In the natural federations, because I was, you know, I don't judge others, but I certainly was not at the age where I was going to start dabbling in um, things that enhance your performance. And I work with a lot of pro athletes, so I know what a pro sport really is. And I'm not discrediting bodybuilding. It, it absolutely for those who are really into it, it takes a lot of dedication and training demands, et cetera. But for me personally, it really didn't because I am genetically blessed and I am, I've always been pretty fit and I loved being in the gym. That was my playground. So I, I need to preface with, yes, I'm a professional bodybuilder and I have competed from 47 until uh, I competed a year and a half ago last, and I'm probably going to compete this year at 55. But it's, it's not exactly what I consider a pro sport for me, the way I do it. It's, it's really fun for me. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very but cool. I, yeah, so, but I do understand what people do you know, who are at a more intense level than me. Very cool. So as we start our discussion about wellness and addressing the serious issue of burnout, it would be really helpful for us to set the context by giving our listeners just a few statistics regarding the need to focus on wellness, particularly given what the numbers are regarding um, such serious issues as depression, anxiety, addiction, and suicide, particularly among lawyers and in our communities. Do you have some statistics or anecdotes that you can share with us regarding the magnitude of these problems? I have both. <laughs> Great. First, let me just say that anecdotally, working with very high-pressured, sometimes, oftentimes high-profile people in my career, I have certainly worked with an imbalanced number of lawyers over the years. And there's a lot of important reasons for that. And so what I actually did recently, believe it or not, I wrote a docudrama that highlights the reasons why addiction, depression, anxiety 
are so prevalent in the legal profession. And it starts with law school and it goes through and, and demonstrates in a very, I hate to use this word, but entertaining storyline. You know, the, that's the drama part, but the docu part really shows where and how and why this problem is, is not getting better and actually pretty frightening. So according to Betty Ford in a recent study, 28% of licensed employed lawyers suffer with depression. Wow, that's a pretty high statistic. It is. And then you add 19% are struggling with anxiety, right? Which is, you know, maybe a little more, a little closer to the norm. However, when I look at those numbers, I don't differentiate between those two things because they're both significant symptoms of chronic stress. So I blend those numbers together and and give you the total of 19 plus 28. And that's really the percentage of what we're talking about, which is almost half of licensed professional employed lawyers. Scary. It's really scary. But now here's the other part of it. And this is another symptom of chronic stress. 18% compared to the national average of 6.8% are struggling with alcohol abuse. Wow. Yeah. So people look at this and, you know, again, here I am, rebellious soul, pushing back on the norm of, you know, why people are, you know, addressing this. And they talk a lot about work-life balance being the issue, right? Yeah, we hear about that all the time and people interview, they ask about it. And a lot of people, I think, seem to go there as the reason for it. And we're sure it's more complicated than that. You better believe it. So in 2017, the National Bar Association started an initiative because this problem is so prevalent and detrimental. They started an initiative that says we need to do things for workplace wellness for our legal community, because there's, there's a lot of detriment here, a lot of suffering here. And so to that end, law firms, especially the larger ones, not so much the smaller ones, the larger ones have, you know, incorporated, and you would know better than, than me what's going on in some of these bigger law firms, they've incorporated wellness initiatives. So that means they, you know, have a department that maybe talks about how you have to exercise more or eat different, you know, eat to lose weight or things to kind of say, yes, we're meeting that initiative. Do you, do you have that in your own firm? Yes, we actually do. And I think that you raise a great point. My firm really is committed to mindfulness, wellness, and educating our lawyers through our professional development team, primarily about different ways to manage stress. We've held meditation courses, many different facets of what I would call mindfulness, which we will get to a bit later in in, in more detail. But you know, it's interesting though, because there are some firms that are really looking at that and trying to be much more uh, focused and intentional about it. But I would not say that it's necessarily a universal effort. No way. It's not. Which is why, you know, sometimes I'm getting my, I'm having my phone ring. <laughs> because, right, exactly. Well, um, because what I do is different. And so what you just mentioned, those things that your law firm is, is offering, which are great, I'm sure. But I'm just going to pick up on one thing that you said. So you said they're offering mindfulness 
courses. Yes. Now that's great, but here's the caveat to being great. Where I come in and, and what I'm trying to help people to recognize with their wellness and performance initiatives and their different workplaces is that starting with here, you can take this course is a setup for failure because if you're talking about somebody who's overwhelmed already, where on earth are they going to now insert something new? Exactly. So what I do is I set the stage for them. I help them optimize their brain by reducing the chronic stress first, which actually creates a space in their brains to allow new information to come in and then they can take the class. But they need to first lay the, and I do this with addiction treatment too. A lot of people go into treatment and it's wasted. And that's why people cycle through treatment after treatment because they didn't start where they needed to start, which is with brain optimization, which is with balancing brain chemistry and laying the foundation to receive and change. Well, and we will get into that topic in a little bit more detail later in the show, but that's fascinating. And I'm sure that our listeners are going to love hearing more about it. So, you know, sort of picking up on on the, some of the threads that you have just addressed, what do you think it is about the legal profession and being a lawyer that makes um, issues and problems such as depression and anxiety and addiction and even suicide such a, a more prevalent problem? Um, I've had other guests on the show over the past year and a half that we've that we've had paradigm shift. And, you know, a lot of times people say that it's a stress-related industry and it's a stress-related situation, but you've done so much work in this area. You have a lot of people in your in your orbit who are lawyers. What do you think are some of the root causes for this? Okay, great. Thank you for asking, because there are some of the very obvious ones that people go to, which is what are your working hours like? Well, lawyers tend to work exorbitant hours. I'm going to back up a minute though. So, so the top ones that, that people already know probably are that there's pressure in terms of performance and in terms of the hourly, you know, the demands of the work week, right? Which creates that work-life imbalance. So that's why that fuels the work-life balance focus. But I want to back up and talk about what happens in law school. And, and again, this is where the documentary that I, I've created, the docudrama, is you know, kind of, in my mind, really important. <laughs> right. And I'd love to hear more about the docudrama, too, and where people can find it. Well, yeah, they can't find it yet. That's, we'll talk about that. So in law school right now, the, you know, there's, it's a saturated field. And so the pressure for you know, getting into law schools and then being at the top of the law schools to land the best jobs, that's where the pressure cooker begins. And what happens quite often is that you have these endless all-nighters that people pull. And what that does with chronic stress of all kinds, physically and mentally, is it then requires often some kind of uh, medicinal intervention, and it's not usually prescribed to help people to fall in. So they, they get a lot of times you wind up seeing people with the Adderall addiction to keep them up and going, followed by the some kind of. Oxycontin or pain medication to 
allow them to go to sleep, which can lead to, and I'm, I'm summarizing this greatly, but a lot of, believe it or not, heroin addiction, which is a you know, prevalent addiction in our country right now. But people don't realize that it's amongst lawyers too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you have the, the law school lifestyle setting the stage for just an unhealthy lifestyle when you get out, and it doesn't get better when you get into the firms. And so a couple of the main stressors are, one is the financial debt to law school that, that lawyers face. The, the other is the pressure of the practice itself. And that goes hand in hand with something that people don't really talk about that much. And so I really want to focus on that, which is the vicarious trauma from your work. So what does that mean, vicarious trauma from your work? Well, in a lot of legal practices, you're dealing with very emotional clients. Correct. When you're dealing with a lot of very emotional and personally sensitive material, you can very easily experience vicarious trauma from your work. And I know the lawyers that I work with are often having to juggle the anxieties, depressions, fears, anger, all of that of their clients. They're not just practicing law. Does that ring true? Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you talk to people who are really at the top of their game in the legal profession, that they're not just terrific practitioners and and really knowledgeable about the substantive area of law in which they practice, but their ability to really deliver from a client service perspective is driven in large part by their empathy. And so I think you're spot on that part of being able to be empathetic means that you're really able to put yourself in your client's shoes. And it's not just the legal issues of their particular predicament. It's also um, emotionally where they're coming from, what their frame of reference is, just with respect to the issue at hand and so forth. Yeah, exactly. And so it's really not unlike a physician's vicarious trauma. And or a therapist's vicarious trauma. And therapists have, you know, gone through school and in our schooling, it talks about how to protect yourself from burnout in that regard. You guys probably don't get that in law school. Absolutely not. (laughs) At least not when I went to law school. Right. So chronic stress comes from things that we don't even realize. And in fact, most of us feel like we're operating pretty darn well when we're dealing with a lot of hard things in our work. Not everybody is crumbling in the face of, (laughs) you know, dealing with really hard situations at work. But the truth is that it's still taking, even for those of us who are well-practiced and resilient, it still takes an incredible amount of wear and tear on your brain, which is our most vital organ and where anti-aging really begins and staying focused and sharp. And we all have to be in our careers a lot longer than we thought years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And to keep our cognitive functioning, you know, in top shape, even if we think we're handling all this stuff pretty well, we still need to take care of our brains and manage chronic stress or it will cause deterioration. So this, this topic is not just about people who are experiencing the symptoms identifiably, the anxiety, depression, you know, drug use, eating. Addiction, by the way, is not just about drugs and alcohol. We know this. It's also about any behavior that you do that does not serve you and you continue to do it anyway, to keep it simple. So it could be food. It could be 
even exercise, but you know, that's a little bit different, but it, it could be sex, gambling, all kinds of things. So, I mean, you've just mentioned a lot of really important things to keep in mind when we're talking about chronic stress. Why don't we look a little bit deeper at you? And you mentioned some of the ways that it manifests. Um, and there's obviously, you know, as you mentioned, there are the reasons that everybody knows that, you know, sort of induce the stress and cause the issues that we're talking about, like burnout and addiction, for example. What are some, and obviously some of the things that we see as manifestations of it are, are somewhat obvious. For example, mood irregularities, yep. you know, having a hard time getting along with people, being irritable, yep. it impacts your sleep. What are some of the things, and you mentioned cognitive abilities a, a minute ago. Why don't we talk about some of the more nuanced or, or, or some of the consequences of chronic stress that people may not appreciate as much? Absolutely. So you mentioned the, the ones that are easy to identify, right? And even for many people, they aren't, aren't self-aware enough to realize as it's happening until it gets to be really significant. But the ones that, you're, that are not so you know, well-known are the fact that chronic stress absolutely deteriorates your memory capacity. It thwarts your creativity and lawyers need to be able to think creatively. We know this. And I don't mean creatively with a pen and paper, I mean creatively with problem solving. And that's where a very interesting truth around chronic stress comes into play. So most people don't realize that when, when your brain goes into chronic stress mode, you have a heightened level of cortisol and, and basically it comes from that fight or flight mechanism, right? And we know about the caveman and the, and the saber-toothed tiger and how we don't really need that anymore, but it, it has stayed with us, that mechanism. And there's a reason why, because our bodies want to keep us safe. Our brain wants to keep our body safe and wants to protect us from you know, destruction. So chronic stress, when we go into stress brain, the brain is on alert and it shuts down unnecessary thinking, so to speak, in order to just make sure we survive. And we want to thrive, not just survive, right? Right, absolutely. <laughs> the thriving part can only happen when we're not in a chronic st stress condition. So when the brain goes into chronic stress mode, it's like I liken it to when our phones are in airplane mode. Because what happens is we limit, our brains limit the amount of input and output that we can actually deal with. Just like when our phones, we put it in airplane mode to conserve energy. Right. Battery, or we're not attached to the Wi-Fi, we don't have good connection. Our brains do that. It's a, it's a good analogy that people understand typically. But the interesting thing that people don't realize is that when it goes, so to protect us, when the brain goes into chronic stress in terms of problem solving, the brain tends to focus on a greater upside than maybe realistic. In other words, it overestimates the positive in order to try to reduce the stress that we're feeling. Wow, that's pretty interesting. I didn't know yeah. that. Imagine what that can do in the legal practice. <laughs> right, yeah, that's not a really good thing. <laughs> right. So most people don't recognize that, in fact, chronic stress can, our brain is trying so hard to protect us that it makes us you know, try to see the upside in a way that may be overestimated. Yeah. And in financial decision-making, that's also a problem. 
So how do you know when you're there? How do, you know, I think everybody knows what it feels like to be under stress, whether you're a lawyer or you do something else for a living, whether it's professional stress, personal stress, I think we've all been there. How do you know when you are at a point where you're under chronic stress and you need to be worried about some of these more, what I would say are more serious issues, for example, relating to your cognitive ability? How do you, like, what are the warning signs when you're there? Okay, so two things. One is that you won't always see the warning signs um, because we get used to, it becomes par for the course. We just get used to things, right? And so having someone who you trust outside of yourself to give you feedback around, you know, are you more irritable or, you know, are you losing passion or focus or uh, is your work suffering in some capacity? Okay, that's, that's good to always have, you know, a checks and balance with somebody you trust. What I would like people to do is to realize that we all have to experience stress and not all stress is bad. Stress in and of itself in a moment can help us rise up and perform better. The problem is when we are experiencing stress in all the different parts of our life or in several different parts of our life. So if we're having stress at work and then we're not doing anything outside of work to de-stress, or we go home to family life, which is often filled with stressors of different kinds, we are basically going from a stress level to a stress level. And it doesn't have to be through the roof over the top, but then when those moments come where it does go through the roof and over the top, you know, we are spent. We, we are exhausted. So, you know, people, when they're struggling with sleep, you mentioned a bunch of the ones that are symptoms that are obvious, right? When your sleep is disturbed, when your eating patterns are altered, not consciously, but you find they're either eating a lot less or you're binging a lot more, you lose a passion for your work. You start to feel in the morning when you wake up, you don't want to go there. Right. <laughs> right. Those are all things. And, but so that's why, you know, the work that I do, it's not just for people who are already there. It's a preventative measure. And it, it's, it gives, I give people very strategic exercises that they can implement in their day throughout the day to reduce the cortisol just a bit, just enough to start getting it in check. Well, and I'm really excited that we're going to, in, in the second part of our conversation, that we're going to get into more detail about how you work with your clients to manage these things and so that they're not just in survival mode, but they're also thriving. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, it's also, this is applicable to any age, any stage of life, but it, it tends to worsen in the midlife range. And we're going to talk about this, I'm sure, later too. But the reason why that happens is because of hormones. And I'm always fascinated when I go and I speak, particularly, I do a lot of gigs with um, law firms. And oftentimes the audience is heavily weighted on the male side of things. And it's all these very smart, smarter than me people. I'm amazed that they don't know this one word about their own bodies. And, and I'm annoyed with their doctors for not talking with them about it. But men have andropause the same way that women have menopause or very similarly. 
And when we have hormone changes in our bodies, it completely impacts our ability to manage stress. Well, I'm really looking forward to talking about that because that's something that I was not familiar with either. And I'm sure that we're going to have a great conversation about that in our in our second half. Yeah. It's hard to believe, but we're actually about out of time for the first segment of our conversation. Do you have any closing thoughts you would like to share with our listeners and where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. So chronic stress can be managed and it's not as hard as you think. I can't get rid of people's stressors, but I can get rid, uh, help them get rid of the impact of the stressors um, on their brains and bodies. So my website's under construction. It should be, you know, completed. People can certainly go there and uh, com and learn a little bit more at this moment. And then also contact me to talk about one-on-one or have me come in and talk to their whole firm either way. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm really looking forward to the second part of our conversation. Yeah, me too. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. We hope that you have enjoyed part one of our conversation with Ava Diamond and that you will join us next week for part two of our chat. I'm your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.